Well, I, um, I got the best email I've ever gotten this uh, past week. Um, I just want to read it to you. It says, uh, hello, Pastor Dan. I would like to tell you how much Bethel Church has made an impact on my kids. Um, the Sunday before last, my high school daughter heard your call that the church might exhibit the diversity of heaven and show love to those who are not like us and to become learners of different cultures. And so she was so moved that she asked me yesterday, which was um, someday this week, if this coming Sunday, which would be today, we could attend services at the Gary campus instead of the HP campus. And I wanted to let you know that when, we don't, when you don't see our faces next week, that you know where we are, and I hope that that encourages you and encourage me more than encourages me. That, that is amazing, isn't that? To see a, um, a high school kid in our church hear the word of God, be so moved by it, and want to do something about it, amen? I don't want that just for high school girls. I want that for you. I want that for all of us, amen? That we might know what it is to see uh, uh, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And so um, if ever you want to just go to the Gary campus and worship and learn, I, I just ask you this. Go there with a posture of humility. Go there to learn. Go there to feel uncomfortable, right? You're, they worship in a different way than you do. Some of you, Daniel stands here and he's like, hey, it's okay in the Bible. The Bible tells you, we're Bible people, right? The Bible tells you to lift your hands and you're still like, nope. And so we're just like, go to the Gary campus where they literally like, that's like, they do handstands. <laughs> and, and listen, 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 let, let's, not, let's not be so white that, that we can't learn. Amen? Okay, well, before you guys get out of the chairs and run up into the aisles, I should probably <laughs> open up to God's word. I just was so encouraged by that. I had to share it with you. I just love seeing what God's doing in our church. Um, I hope I don't ever bore you or wear you out with stories of my life and what I'm learning from my kids. That's kind of where I'm at in life. And I'm a kid to, I'm a, I'm a parent uh, to three kids and a smartphone. This is my fourth child. And sometimes I have to choose between which child, dads, you can amen this. This is the one time it's okay to be distracted by your phone. You can amen this. Uh, sometimes I'm, I'm torn between which child I'm going to pay attention to and which text message I'm going to respond to. Like, my kids will, I'll be doing this, trying to, like, respond to one of you all, and my kids will be like, hey, Dad, watch me. Hey, Dad, watch this. And I'll be like, yeah, 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 hey, hang on, hang on, hang on. Someone from church just posted something on Instagram. And uh, Miles just learned how to break dance. I don't know who taught him how to break dance. <laughs> Whatever one of you it was, I mean, thank you. It's our, your gift to us. And he's like, Dad, watch this. And then Elin, who's in ballet, she's like, no, Dad, watch this. I can do a, a pirouette or I don't even know what it is. And she's like, watch this, Dad. And, and I find myself as a dad just so torn in my, um, in, in my ability to, to, to watch and, and to have my attention just put on someone. And my kids often are, are going, watch me, Daddy, watch me, Daddy, watch me, Daddy. And then my phone notifies me that one of you has put something online and you're like, hey, watch me, Pastor. And hey, watch me, Pastor. And I'm like, this is... Too much? And so I'll give in to my kids because I love them. And um, I'll watch, and, and my kids will do something, and Miles ends every, every dance move like this. And I know it's not over until he does this. And I wait for it, and I go, dude, buddy, that's amazing. Good job, man. Like, yeah. And you wouldn't believe how much that just little affirmation from his dad fills up his tank. And you know what he says? Hey, daddy, watch this one. 
When daddy watches and applauds, it's like the best validation for him. And that's so true about us too. What is it that makes God stop and applaud us? Inside each and every one of us is this thing as a child of God, which, which wants to fight for God's attention, wants to fight for God's eyes to look at us. And, and, and oftentimes we think that the way we're going to go about getting God's attention is by going, hey, dad, hey, dad, hey, dad, hey, dad, watch this. Hey, watch this. Hey, watch how good I can be. Hey, watch how, how I do this. Hey, watch how I care for this person. Hey, hey, watch, watch. And um, all of us have many ideas about what makes God delight in us. And in Romans chapter 2, Paul is going to show the Jews, particularly, how what they think God makes them uh, fawn over them is actually the thing that he is most angry about. And we need to hear this message today, too, because each and every one of our hearts, we think we're seeking God's favor, and in actuality, we are condemning ourselves. Don't you love Romans chapter 2? We've appropriately titled this part of our study through the book of Romans, The Gospel and Our Misery, and it'll uh, please you to know that today we're going to start in verse 17 and finish out the chapter to which someone said amen. Yeah, uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 17. Join me there. If you've got your copy of God's Word, it'll help. Uh, otherwise, I'll put a couple on the screen. Um, look at this, starting right here. But if you call yourself a Jew, and I'm going to do that thing where pre preachers stop before like anything's actually said, but, but if you call yourself a Jew... And Paul could have said a couple other things here. He could have said, if you call yourself a Hebrew, that would have, that would have been okay. Paul says that of himself in Philippians 3.5. He says that, Paul speaking, he says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. It's like a way of saying, like, I'm, I'm really big stuff. Um, really, though, that just means someone who speaks the Hebrew language. And Paul could have also said, if you call yourself an Israelite, but that was really just a way of saying that's where you lived was in Israel. Um, instead, he says, if you call yourself a Jew, which is a way to say, if you take public pride as a member of the nation of God's chosen people, if you self-identify as, as one of the people from the clan of Judea or Judah, that word in Genesis we, we learn is those who are praised. If you call yourself a Jew, if you call yourself one who is praised by God, that's what his, his point is. If you think you're praised because of your privileged position, if you call yourself a Jew, the problem was that the Jews got caught up in their nationality so much that their nationality became their supremacy instead of their peculiarity. God created them to be different people, a peculiar people. And they instead took their uniqueness and they raised it up so high that in the process they lost the thing that made them unique in the first place, namely their sense of dependence upon God. The Jews were so proud of their nationality that they made God subject to their nationality. They would say, we are the chosen people of God. God loves us. He will bless us. He must bless us. And in one sense, we're trying to force the hand of God of blessing on their life. That's so twisted because God created the Jewish people in the first place. And uh, this would never happen on this continent in the past 250 years where a people who are formed out of some sense of religious freedom might view their founding fathers as saints reveled in their status as a city on a hill, exalted their supreme uniqueness around the world, and in the process totally suppressed God. That's the closest thing I have to sarcasm. Right, we can relate to this, can't we, as, as, a, as a bunch of Americans? We can relate to what the Jews are thinking in their, in their sense of we in the world are the, are the, we're it, man. Like, you guys need to look like us. And the 4th of July is coming up. My favorite 
my favorite holiday. It's like this, 4th of July is crazy. Burgers and fireworks and boats and just amazing. And um, yet some Americans treat 4th of July as they do the most sacred day of the year. As if God gave us America to make us Americans to show off our superiority to the world. And so you understand in some sense how the Jews would have attached themselves to their uh, pride. How they attached themselves to their nation. Now that's the sense of what Paul means when he sets them up with this phrase, if you call yourself a, a Jew. If you take pride in your privileged position. And notice the vision of what this perfect Jewish person in their perfect spiritual posture looks like. Uh, read the, the next couple of verses. But if you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law and you boast in God and you know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. This was the vision for what the Jews were supposed to look like and be in the world. This was the vision for what each and every Jew thought of themselves. This whole thing is held together not by um, who they are or what they're called, but by their possession of the law. The thing that, 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 that ties all of this up is the fact that the law is the foundation for Jewish exceptionalism. Notice this is what Paul is calling out here. Five things about the law. He says this, you rely on the law. All people here say that's a good thing, right? That is a good thing. Sincerely, that is a good thing to rely on the law. The word here, rely, it evokes the image of walking with a cane. It's as if you're dependent upon this thing to get you through your life. You're, you put all of your weight upon it when you move. And how we should want to rely upon God's law. Number two, they bragged about God. Paul, Paul says you boast in God. There's a couple ways you could take this. Um, one way would be to say, uh, if you think of yourself as God's hype man, and um, I, the other day, my son, Miles, discovered that one of our Alexas in our house, our, our, our Echoes, uh, those, those little wiretaps that Amazon put in our houses, um, doesn't have a, a like, it's, it's run by a battery. And so he was playing, he's playing hip-hop. I don't know how he got hip-hop on this thing. But he was walking around the house holding it up, playing hip-hop, and it was like, and he was walking around the house. And all of a sudden, I was following him around just to figure out, like, what are you doing, dude? And he walked into a room where uh, my wife was sitting, and he was holding up this speaker. And Kristen goes, uh, dude, is Miles your new hype man now? And I thought to myself, no, but he should be. This is a great idea. How do I get him to do this? This is awesome. I love the feeling I have right now. Now presenting my dad. What up? Give it up, everybody. Not what Paul's talking about. Fun idea, not at all. It's not about bragging about the one that you're representing. It's not about bragging about the one that you're uh, even ushering in. It's actually bragging that that person likes you most. You have that sibling, maybe you're the sibling, but you have that sibling in your family who's like, dad likes me most, and you want to punch him? This is what Paul's talking about. Number three, they knew his will. How, how many of you just wish you knew God's will, right? Like, God, I don't know what to do in this next season of my life. What would you have for me? And they knew his will. They had the, the, the Ten Commandments. They, they knew exactly what God expected out of them. They had their history from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That is the law. That is the Torah. They knew 
what God wanted. Other, other nations were chasing their fickle gods who were always angry and changing their mind. But God had told them in his love, this is what I expect out of you. And so they knew it was such a privilege. They all, because of that, they knew right and wrong. That's number four. That's what Paul says. You, you can um, approve what is excellent. By contrast, we can say that they disapproved of what was dishonorable. They, they knew right and wrong. They knew right morality. They, they, they knew, compared to the ignorant Gentiles, and then number five, they were catechized. That's what the word uh, instructed uh, from the law. That, that all is from the Greek word catechism. If you grew up in a t- certain type of church, you uh, would have uh, possibly been catechized yourself. Maybe you went to CCD or you had confirmation class. You were instructed by God's law to learn it by memory, to answer the test. It was pounded in your mind. These five positions, they sent around the law. We live by the law. God gave us the law. We know what God wants. We know what's right and wrong. We, we even teach in our schools that special law. And these are absolutely amazing things, no doubt. Only someone with these attributes could even be considered as having spiritual eyes open to the point that they could be a guide for the blind or a light for those in darkness or a teacher of the unlearned. Why? Because you, in the law, you have the embodiment, Paul says, the embodiment, the physical representation of the law being lived out around you of knowledge and truth. And here's the big idea. Paul's saying, you think God praises you for your spiritual position. Like, you think God is excited about you because of what he's given you. They said, we're blessed, we're privileged, we're the perfect people. God has his hand of favor on us, and he's put us in a special spiritual position. And while this is in part true, it should have led these people to humble and merciful worship, but instead it hardened them in disdain for the Gentiles and in their own arrogance. And I I laugh. you got to look at verse 19. It's not going to be on the screen. If you're in your Bible, look at verse 19. Look at what Paul says. He says, if you call yourself a Jew because you're instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind... You hear the arrogance that Paul is kind of, contra- kind of counteracting. You're so sure, you Jewish people, that you are the guides to the blind. What does Jesus say in his uh, Gospels? He, he, he calls out the Pharisees. He says, woe to you, O Pharisees, you teachers of the law, you blind guides. See, see, the Jews thought that they were the ones who were helping the poor Gentiles who couldn't find their way around the world or live according to God's law. And in actuality, because of their arrogance, he turns the phrase on them and he says, no, 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 you're not guys to the blind. You yourself are the blind who are trying to lead the blind. You need your eyes opened. Proud. You're proud people. Why is it that privilege often leads to pride, which makes religious people insufferable? The Gentiles saw the pompous Jews and they resented it. Kent Hughes, who's a, uh, he's a pastor, he wrote this. He says, whenever a follower of Christ feels superior, he should beware, for such an attitude is not a sign of God's grace. And so to combat this pride, Paul's like, wait, 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 wait. Let me, get this, let, me get this, let me get this right. So you boast in the light and the revelation that you have, Right? Like, you can break down the Bible. You understand justification, propitiation, expiation, sanctification, glorification. You understand eschatology, ecclesiology, anthropology, and your exegesis is precise as an exacto knife. You have the light of the sun in the sky illuminating your lives. Meanwhile, the Gentiles are using the, like the flashlight app on their iPhone trying to stumble around in the dark. So you're using the sunlight to live by, right? And look at where this goes, verse 21. He says, but then you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? 
And everybody said, ouch. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And I have no jokes or lighthearted comment, just a simple oof for us. Taken together as a series of questions, we can easily pass the buck to some other group of people, but in reality, every one of us, whether you will ever teach from this pulpit here or whether you lead a small group or whatever you teach in a kids' ministry, whether you do that or not, we've all, we've all done this. We're all guilty of this. So I just want to take these uh, a little bit, one at, one at a time. You who teach, do you not teach yourself? Um, Paul's like, hey, hey, teacher, uh, God doesn't praise your spiritual position as a teacher when you fail to live it out. Knowing the truth is one thing, right? But letting the truth teach you is another. Like, it's one thing to, to know that I ought to forgive somebody right now, but it's another thing to actually submit yourself in God's plan to forgiving another person and letting that forgiveness teach you something about the character of God. In the Greek mind, wisdom was simply knowledge. It's the word Sophia. But in the Jewish mind, uh, wisdom was knowledge that changed your behavior. So, um, teacher, do you know facts or are you wise? We say today, um, don't trust a skinny chef. Right? Like, I come over to your house and you're cooking me burgers. You better be the bigger one of you. And thank the Lord, the, the phrase is not, don't trust a skinny pastor. <laughs> the next two go together. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? That's the eighth commandment. And then you who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? That's the seventh commandment. We could put this under the category of being a moral watchdog. Are, are, you, are you consistent with your expectations of yourself as you are with the standard by which you say all ought to live? Paul's like, hey, self-appointed um, defender of marriage. God doesn't praise your fidelity to the text when you lack fidelity to your spouse. Not only does God hate that, but isn't it, isn't it true that when you find someone who is um, not loving their spouse, they're like the last person you want to take biblical advice from. Amen? You're just like, bro, plank, I, right here, take it out. Lastly, he says this, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? And honestly, when I, when I read this for the first time, I was like, oh, man, there's a lot of people who are going to be hit by the first three. But that fourth one, that's a piece of cake. We don't, we don't, nobody, ain't nobody robbing temples. You better not have robbed a temple in your life. <laughs> nobody robs temples. But the more I studied it, the more I got into it to see what actually Scripture says about robbing temples, the more convicted I was, and the more I realized that this is actually the sonic boom that levels each and every one of us in this room right now. And it could be seen so many different ways. I don't have a ton of time to go into uh, each and every one of these uh, facets of meaning, but I want to just tell you this. It could be seen as an extension of the second commandment. And at the core is the fact that Jewish people were to abstain from giving credence to false gods, lest they demean the concept and the name and the honor of Yahweh. 
To, to, to rob a temple, it means to fail to give God the honor he deserves. And here's how, it, here's actually what's happening. The Jews, in their monotheistic way, they had their temple with no idols inside of it. And there are all these pagan temples all around them. And there, we, have, we have ancient documents that actually detail the actions of these Jews, which lets us know that this is a real thing and this is not just some made-up story to make a point in a sermon. Uh, that Jews of this day would go around and they would break into the pagan temple and they would get their bag and kind of swipe a couple, idol, a couple idols off the shelf. They put them in the bag, they go down, down the road and they'd see uh, pagan Gentiles coming up to uh, the temple to worship and they'd say, oh, hey, aren't you worshiping at the temple of such and such? They say, well, you're going to need an idol. Hey, how about this one? Schwing! And they'd sell it to him for 20 bucks. And Paul's saying, hey, hey, that is so incongruent with who you say you are. You're a Jew who says that, hero Israel, the Lord or your God, the Lord is one. And, and, and you dishonor God by giving credence and making money and profiting off of false religion. And so you who say you have whore idols, do you also rob temples? It's, it's very literal, like, have you stolen idols and sold them? But there's another way that um, the Jews had robbed temples, and this actually comes a little closer to, to our house, to, to our home, because not only did the Jews rob pagan temples, but the Jews were accused of robbing their own temple. And um, you sit here and you look, you know, around, and you go, we've never, we've ne- we wouldn't rob our own temple, and Suffice it to say, on more than one occasion, I've been in your homes, and I've seen these little white pens that have the name Bethel on them. (laughs) I just want to make you raise your hand, but don't worry, you're, you're off the hook. That's not what Paul's talking Everybody breathe a sigh of relief. Actually, we want you to take the pens. It's a little, it's a little thing. It's called marketing, actually. Um, that's not what Paul's talking about. And you take as many pens as you want. We got a whole stash of them. We can order more. They're cheap. Um, actually, we want you to have those pens out in the world where people can run into them. Um, just take sermon notes with the pen before you take it, though, okay? Paul's not talking about, like, did you help yourself to the pens? Did you steal more coffee? Did, you know, it's not about that. Actually, in scriptures, when, G, when, when, when God confronts the Jews for robbing their own, their own temple, the best example of this is Malachi chapter 3. God confronts the priests who are in charge of the order of worship, and they have profaned worship. They have made it impure. They have made it a thing that it was never designed to be. And they were profiteering. They were skimming off the top. And God confronts them in Malachi chapter 3, verses, you can start in verse 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. All will, uh, will tell you, God, God says, hey, you've robbed me. And then literally in the text, the question is this. They all say it together in unison. Well, how have we robbed God? And God responds back. He says, by failing to bring the full tithe into the storehouse. You robbed me by failing to give me the honor that I am deserved every single time you fail to give me that which is mine. And I hear that, and financially, I'm cut to the heart because I know that's been something that I've dealt with in my life. I don't, know, I don't know anything about the financial status of your family or how much you give. That's actually very privileged information. I don't know. But suffice it to say, I, I'd be surprised if everyone in this room was giving 10% of their income to the Lord. God very much quickly calls out that heart. But, but here's another way we rob God, and we, 
don't even realize it, is, is every time we gather to worship and we fail to give God out of a heart that is grateful for, for, for who he is and what he's done, and we fail to, to engage and to worship him with our whole heart. Like, may we not be a place of half-hearted worship. May we not rob God of the glory that he deserves whenever we come into this temple. That's the type of thing Paul's talking about. You don't honor God the way you should, even though you proclaim monotheism as the core tenet of your religion. And what happens when religiously proud people act like this? Well, verse 24 tells us, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Right, so God, help us not be a church that turns off people to the Savior because of our actions. Here's what impresses God. Right thinking, that's orthodoxy, which leads to right living, that's orthopraxy, which leads to right worship and humility. They thought that God praised their spiritual position. So, so here's, here's what we gotta do. We just gotta like, ch- just check in with me right now. Everybody up looking at me. Um, uh, are you a small group leader here at Bethel? Uh, do you teach anywhere in our church? Do you serve in any capacity? Don't trust the lie that because you organize a group of friends and have good intention to help people grow in their faith that you have a more privileged position before God than anyone else around here. That includes me. You know, something I try and do on a weekly basis around here is to take off the crown that you all try and put on me. Pastor Dan, Pastor, there's, there's, I don't know who that guy is. And in churches, we always, like, the platform gets a little taller and a little wider, and um, that's not the thing that God applauds. God applauds humility, servant leadership. And so if you're a small group leader, um, listen, you have a responsibility, yes, and you also have the amazing blessing of having a front row seat to watch God do some amazing things in people's lives. That is such a tremendous blessing. But you've been given the task of leading graciously. And remember that privilege often battles pride. We know that God applauds when we live out what we say, when we make much of God and his grace. And when we honor him, it causes his name to be honored. But when we dishonor him, it causes his name to be blasphemed. So if you're tracking with the argument in Romans 2, then Paul has uh, just done this. He's disarmed the Jewish notion that they're going to be the privileged majority culture in the world. He's deconstructed their idea of escaping the judgment of God because they're good people. He's just dismantled the idea that because they own and they teach the law that they're going to be fine. And finally, he's going to demolish the last shred of false security and pride that the Jews might cling to. It's the sign of circumcision. Kids, ask your parents. Every pastor loves preaching about circumcision. So here goes. Verse 25, look at, look at the text with me. And here's what Paul says. He makes this argument. It's so important to the Jews. He says this, for circumcision is indeed a value if, everybody say if, you, you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So, so Paul is um, challenging the covenant sign of circumcision, which was the ultimate Jewish sign of the unique covenant that they had with God. It was a, it was a sign that demonstrated to the world that um, they were a, a part of the chosen race. The circumcision it became the unique mark of the Jew. The eighth day after the child was born, he was circumcised. 
That was an indication that the child was being set apart for the special covenant relationship with God. It was, it was very important, very important. Genesis 17 is where God uh, first instructs this practice to happen, and he tells Abraham that he wants this, uh, to, to do this practice because the covenant then may be, and these are God's words, in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Now, the covenant might be something that you're reminded of daily, but it's also something that, that is just a part of you. In verse 14, God says to Abraham, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off. It's an interesting choice of words. Shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. It was so important that back in Exodus chapter 4, God threatened to kill Moses because he failed to have his son circumcised. It was a sign of God's promise. It was his blessing. It was his love. And so it sounds like a small thing, but in a very real way, it automatically creates the categories of the haves and the have-nots, those who are in a high-privileged position and those who are not. The Midrash Chilim, that's an old commentary that the rabbis would have used back in, back in their day. It says this, that God swore to Abraham that no one who was circumcised should be sent to hell. It was essentially the Jews' get-out-of-jail-free card. That gives us a sense for how much the Jews banked on this practice. We are better. We have the law. We have the mark of the covenant. We're good. And Paul calls out this problem. First, he says, you think God praises you for your spiritual position. But second, you think God praises you for your external religious acts. You think God's good with you because of what you've done. Listen, listen. It is good to be one of the chosen ones who is marked by the seal, but only if you obey the law. If you break the law, what good is the mark? That's Paul's argument. And we can understand this way better today in our context if we just change the metaphor really briefly. If you think about marriage, um, I, I, one of my greatest joys as a pastor is to do a wedding. And we, uh, we get to bring people who love each other together. And they make vows to one another in the presence of their family and their friends, each other, and God. And um, after they say their vows and they're both appropriately crying, I, as a pastor, I say, um, do you have the rings? And um, that's when... Uh, that's when the, the, the best man plays a joke, and he's like, oh, dude, I don't know where they are, and it's never funny, so don't do that. <laughs> Finally, the rings come by, and I have the couple repeat this. Every, every wedding ceremony, you've heard these words. You may not have recognized it, but we, we, we give the couple of rings. They put it on their finger, and they say, um, I give you this ring as a symbol and pledge of my love for you and our covenant before God. And the ring... As long as you keep yourself faithfully to your spouse alone, the ring has tremendous value. But put the ring on your finger and then go sleep around and the ring might not as well exist. That's the thought. You think your spouse loves you because you wear their ring, but you show you hate them because you sleep around. Likewise, Jews, you think you're good because you have the symbol of the covenant, but you show God that you hate him because you break his covenant. What good is the symbol if it's not actually representing the shadow? Verse 26, Paul shows how the reverse of this statement is also true. So, watch this. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but you break the law. So even if someone wasn't by birth a Jew and wasn't by Mark a Jew, but who sincerely kept the precepts of the law, he would be regarded as though having been marked by the covenant because of his practice. And even worse, if a Gentile could keep the law despite not being circumcised, it would condemn all the more the Jews. 
If we return back to the metaphor of marriage, uh, are not people who sleep around put to shame by the faithfulness of those who are not married but maturely handle their sexual desires? The single person who is not married, who respects the marriage bed, is more faithful to marriage vows than the one who has taken the vow and been unfaithful. You see it, right? And so you know this is a problem because uh, how good is your marriage if, if at the end of the day you have to say to yourself, well, we made vows. But you live together as if those vows had no power. And I'm not advocating divorce. I don't misunderstand me. I'm just simply saying that the vows are obviously meaningless to you if you found yourself at a point where your actions have, to use the marriage words, torn you asunder. And the only thing you have to fall back on are the vows. And vows are strong, but they're supposed to be lived out. That's why they're called vows. And this is the tragedy that Paul is highlighting. The tragedy is that the Jews depended on the physical mark instead of the spiritual reality, the actual covenant that God gave to them. They forgot the vow and they kept the ring. And here's the big idea. Our actions must accord with our profession of faith. You might be sitting here wondering, like, you know, I fail to see the reference to our current situation today, Dan, regarding this whole topic. When my son was born, nobody in the hospital explained to me anything about becoming a chosen person or earning God's favor. Is this even relevant today? The answer is, is wholeheartedly yes. Yes, it's probably not circumcision that you're placing your trust in, but how often we slide into thinking that our external religious acts will appease God. I've learned to listen to how people talk about their relationship with Christ, and I often ask them, hey, do you believe in Jesus? When I, when I meet you for the first time, I often will ask you, like, hey, well, tell me about your faith in Christ. And I've learned people will say a couple different things that trigger off external religious acts. I'm trusting in external religious acts, these little, little whistles that are like not trusting in Christ, not Christ alone, the cornerstone, but, but this other thing. And, and here's what people say. They say, well, yeah, of course I'm, I'm a believer. I've been a member of that church, first church, for 35 years. Of course I'm a believer. Right when I was born, my mom made sure I was baptized as a baby. Or, well, I was confirmed at the right age. And I could keep going with different affiliations, different rites. You've gone to Discover Bethlehem, you've become a member. But are they all not in some way or another circumcisions? External religious acts. And here's the thing. Circumcision um, is not the point. Just like confirmation is not the point, just like infant baptism is not the point, just like your believer's baptism is not the point. The point is what the thing points to, which is God's special, gracious, and undeserved covenant being applied to you. So church membership and baptism and communion and even marriage, it's all sacred metaphors showing us that God has showered his undeserved favor upon us. But we miss it because the privilege brings us the temptation for pride. Which brings us to the end of chapter 2. We have to hear this today. This is so important. Paul says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. Everybody say inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from man, but from God. At the heart of the matter is the heart. So you can take your law, the embodiment of truth and knowledge. You can bank your life on it. You can even teach it to others as I'm doing now. You can even bear the mark of it on your body. And if you fail to live in reverent relationship with God, it's totally useless. At the end, God will look at your external righteousness and say, you were cut off. 
But rather the true Jew, the praiseworthy one, is one whose heart is led by the Holy Spirit to reverence God and his law, to find delight in God's word, to follow God's word and to humble him. And his praise, this person's praise, his or her praise comes from God. And here's who God stops and applauds and pays attention to right here. The one whose heart has been filled by the Spirit. God praises the Spirit-filled heart. It's always been about the heart. Always. Even after the Jews received the law in Deuteronomy, God explicitly told them that he was more worried about their hearts than he was their external actions. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6 says this. It says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and that you may live. Your heart, the essence of your person, it's, the, it's who you are as God sees you. It's not just your body. It's not just your actions. It's your secrets. It's your motivations. It's your desires. It's your cravings. It's, it's how you think. It's how you worship. That's what God's into. To circumcise your heart, then, is to live with new life and a new spirit-transformed heart. And how consistent is this with what Jesus said about this in the Sermon on the Mount? I quote for you a couple things here. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, Jesus says this. Think about how Paul and Jesus are so in line here. Amazing how the Bible does this. Jesus says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Matthew 6, continuing on in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives this example. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven, no praise from God. Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in their synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. He, he's saying, when you drop off your food for the harvest market pantry, don't honk your horn. Don't wave to the people walking in and saying, hey, we brought two bags. Matthew 6, verse 5, when you pray, Jesus says, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and in the street corners that they may be seen by others. External acts of religion. Truly I say to you that they have received the reward, but when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. God praises what you do when no one's looking. God praises who you are that no one can praise you for. The, the, the type of applause that God wants to give us has nothing to do with the way that we serve for public praise, with the praise of men. The, the, the way that God so wants to shower his lavish love and blessing upon us is because in our secret hearts we show that we trust him. So what trophies do you have that you think God is praising you for? What, what are you doing to make God stop and look your way? It's the inward heart renewed by God's spirit that is our only hope. See, the law was the embodiment of knowledge and truth, but John tells us that in Christ, the word became flesh. It was incarnate. It wasn't just embodied, it was incarnate. He dwelt among us, and he was full of, not knowledge and truth, but full of grace and truth. The law is knowledge, but Jesus is grace. 
Your heart is renewed when you then experience God's grace in Christ. He gives us a sense of any spiritual position. He completed for us all of our eternal acts of religion, and he put within us a new heart that is made alive by his spirit. So friends, when you're facing impossible odds at the end of your life, you, you know what you're not going to look for. You're not going to ask for your Awana award on your deathbed. You're going to ask and plead for God's mercy and his grace to be evident in your life. You're going to ask, you're going to say, God, God, would you let me know that you're near in this moment because I've trusted in you. All of our, all of our self-righteousness, all of our works, all of the things that we do to the praise of men is but, but what, what Isaiah called filthy rags. But the grace of God by his spirit speaking tenderly to our new hearts, his grace, it, it's what leads us home. We need the grace of Christ, which can set us free. And if you wish I would have said more about that, you just wait, because Paul is about to blow our minds as we turn next week to Romans chapter 3. 